HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that shape our everyday experiences of growing, buying, and eating food. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network, and I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the resident program for food law and policy at UCLA's School of Law. This week, the focus is on the climate crisis and its connections to food, and I want to begin the show today with a few reflections on the climate march that took place on Sunday. Joining me here in the studio to talk about this is Ralph Logiski. He's with the Food Environment Reporting Network. And on the phone, we have Nadia Johnson, the director of the Food Justice Program at the New York City-based organization Just Food. Hello to you both, and thanks for joining again on Heritage Radio Network. Great to be here. I'm here. Thank you. Uh, So I was at the march on Sunday. You guys were both at the march on Sunday. And obviously it's been a really huge week here in New York City with the U.N. Climate Summit and the major march leading up to that. And for the first time, I think, uh, or I want to talk about, I guess, the role of food food groups and their presence at the march. I saw them as a significant presence. And it was really a turning point, point of sorts in terms of that. So... Nadia, can you talk about Just Food's role in the event and why you were there and how you helped to organize around it? Sure, yeah. Well, we were one of I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people who were part of the food justice convergence of the climate march. Um, we knew when the when the march was announced um, that there was interest amongst some food justice Groups, um, largely the Brooklyn Food Coalition played a huge role in, in um, coordinating us as a group, but a lot of groups sort of got involved in that process to see if we could, you know, march together as a block to uh, really show the the food dimensions of this issue, both in terms of climate mitigation and adaptation, uh, and that uh, you know, for just from Just Foods' perspective. You know, one of the solutions to the climate crisis is really um, 
building and strengthening local food systems. Um, a lot of our food travels around the world in order to get here. Uh, there's a lot of um, CO2 emissions and other greenhouse gas emissions from industrial agriculture, um, from factories all the way down to, you know, deforestation for, like, uh, massive meat production, et cetera. So there are a lot of uh, aspects of this uh, issue in terms of how uh, food and agriculture are contributing to the climate crisis and also how the climate crisis is contributing already to a uh, lack of access to food in, in certain communities around the world and certainly that can um, grow if the climate crisis continues. So that's why we were involved in the march. And Ralph, you have been involved in working on food system issues for a really long time and I want to hear your perspective on you know what you saw leading up to the march and the role that food groups were playing? I think it's interesting. I received a lot of emails from a lot of advocacy groups, you know, really from months in advance, um, telling us to be a part of history. And so I, I, I wanted, I came as a journalist, so um, working with the Food Environment Reporting Network, I kind of wanted to just to see what it was all about. But I used to work with advocacy groups such as uh, Meatless Monday, and we would look at the impacts of livestock um, and how much greenhouse gases they would represent. And um, they did. There are studies that came out from the UN that it says that livestock represents about up to eighteen percent, fourteen to eighteen percent of all greenhouse gases that it, that we as humans are contribute to. Um, so I definitely know a lot about the issues. Um, I did find it interesting that it wasn't people who were at this march weren't all from coming from the same place. I think we talked about there's labor there, indigenous people. Um, I walked in the group with all the food people, which is interesting, so I kind of saw a lot of my, my, my folks. <laughs> um, but I think it was really fascinating just to see how everyone is recognizing that everything's interconnected, and I don't think that's an issue or a way that people have been thinking about the environment. I think um, I think even the climate uh, people, climate march people, even pointed this out that the idea of labor and environmentalists working together, oftentimes they're not seeing eye to eye, and the fact that they all marched together was really kind of neat. So we had a lot of labor groups out there, a lot of unions. Right. And it's it's similar in a way just to food policy issues in and of themselves, the interconnectedness and the challenges around that, around organizing and um, telling the story, because the issues can sometimes be so complex. And Nadia, you used the word convergence, or I think it was the food justice convergence. So, can you talk about, I guess, you know, what did that, what did that represent? What was, where did the term convergence come from, if you know, and and who was participating? Who's yeah, represented well, in it? like like a lot of organizing, the the name um, evolved over time <laughs> in the organizing process. Um, name is often one of the harder the harder points. Evolved into food justice convergence, and I think that just. Um, you know, the, the climate situation definitely um, impacts all through our food chain, from the production um, side of things all the way through processing, distribution, the food we have access to, uh, food waste, all of those areas. Um, it's a labor issue. It's a farming issue. It's an access food access issue. So I think that's where our, our food justice um, convergence title came because we we're bringing together all of these different 
sectors of our food system who are all impacted in, in the same and, and distinct ways from the climate crisis and uh, have similar messages in terms of the solutions to it. So that's where that's where that came from. Um, and in terms of you know just food, we. We work with uh, you know, communities around the city to you know, support like markets for local food through CSAs and community-run farmers markets and farm-to-food pantry and do a lot of work supporting um, urban growers for our farm school, NYC, and, and we're really able to um, do a lot of outreach to those communities, and I think a lot of people turned out for the march from those communities, but it was really exciting to see the breadth of the food movement there at the march. Um, the only thing I regret is that um, I didn't get to see the other aspects of the march because it all sounded so, <laughs> it was all so cool. There was so many, there were, you know, groups of families, you know, meeting and there were bikers and there were, you know, um, people who were advocating for clean energy and there was so much happening, uh, people from different boroughs and different cities and states around the country converging together. So. The only right. thing I regret is that I wasn't able to see all of it. Get around more. Really, so, Nadia, <laughs> really amazing to march. Um, your conversion. Nadia, we're having a little bit of trouble with your connection. It sounds like you might be somewhere fun or maybe you're moving around a little bit. Um, but I'm going to turn to Ralph and maybe you could just try to be in a different spot when we come back to you next before. Um, but I wanted to, because I wanted to get both of your perspectives on one other one other aspect of this as people who have been involved in the food movement for a really long time. How how has this changed? I mean, where were we? If, if this had happened, well, this discussion obviously has been happening, but, you know, a major march in New York City, is it something that you would have seen yourselves being a part of uh, in a really significant way or the groups that you've worked with being a part of if this was 10 years ago, five years ago? Um, how has it changed? I don't think five years ago we would have seen f- the food people involved. Um, I think it's really fascinating. I, I think... Um, we, it, the message has come out. I mean, people like Michael Pollan, um, people even um, they've they've they're the movie Food Inc. I mean, they're all bringing the idea, the concept that everything is connected into a system. And I think we're realizing that food production is impacts the climate, it impacts water, it impacts health, you know, personal health, animal health all these different things that it just, just touches everything. And we're realizing that we need to be a part of all the big things that are out there. And I think it was just kind of a, a sign of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did one thing and I was just thinking about, it, and it's funny that when we talked earlier, we kind of preparing for this discussion, the one group that I didn't see, which I wish I had was farmers. I wish I had seen more farmers. And oftentimes we talk about the convergence or, I don't see, and this is my critique of the food movement, I think that oftentimes we're not always talking with the farmers or giving them a voice because they certainly don't want people to think that agriculture in itself alone is to blame for all of these problems. You know, that we're all working together. There's so many different people. There's so many different, you know, groups. And I think we talked about industrial, and we really want to make sure that people understand that it's industrial agriculture that is leading to many of these problems, not necessarily just agriculture within itself. And I think we need to make sure farmers are painted in a, in a way that um, show that they're not the culprits for all of this. No, and I think a lot of the discussion is also that farmers are on the front lines of contending with this and uh, are most 
at most at risk, which of course means that all of us are at extreme risk because we rely on farmers. But Nadi, do you have any reflections on that? Did you see any farmers, maybe some urban farmers um, at the event? And, and then also, can you just tell us a little bit about just personally how it felt to be there? Yeah, um, okay, so I'm sitting, I moved my position and I'm sitting super still, so hopefully you can <laughs> yes, hear me okay. Yes, it's great, um, it's better. Well, yeah, I think there were, there were so many, there was the New York City Community Garden Coalition there, there was Just Food Farm School NYC staff and students and teachers, um, people who are part of different uh, growing projects around the city, so there was a huge urban ag community there. I think also it's challenging for the farmers to actually get away from the farm this time of year. (laughs) The high harvest farm. But we definitely we and others definitely did a lot of outreach to farmers. So worth to get them there. I don't know how many were able to come. There was also an attempt to get a tractor um <laughs> to be part of the food justice conversion um but but that that proved to be a, a permitting challenge um but uh but yeah i think and also uh you know in terms of five ten years ago you know this climate change issue has been around for i, I think scientists identified it as a as a potential growing challenge at least 20, 30 years ago. So um, when I started at Just Food uh, about six years ago, we actually started working on a, a food prints campaign with a bunch of other groups around the city, you know, recognizing the connection to our food system through climate change um, mitigation and adaptation. And, and uh, so we did a lot of work around that with then council member de Blasio. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, we also, in 2009, hosted a summit with the then uh, uh, borough president of Manhattan, Scott Springer, uh, the New York City Food and Climate Summit. Uh, and so some of the stuff that, you know, started about five years ago have really evolved into um, extensive policies by the city from the mayor's plan YC, now includes some food targets, food and agriculture targets, the city council food right. works, etc. So right, we've seen course. a real growth there. Right, and, and we, uh, yeah, we that we had the opportunity to work on together. Um, going yeah, back to great. when I was in the mayor's office, and and with your conference, I, I remember that, and we actually later our guest on the show uh, later, which will be Joan Gussow, who spoke at that conference, and I know is on your board as well. So some of the early thinking and and building blocks that helped. Uh, create the network that was able to be present at the at the march on sunday and i just i want to ralph just hear from you any final thoughts on you know what it was like to be there just the feeling of the day i was glad i was a part of history i think you know the idea that president obama did kind of allude to um the the march when when he was speaking to the yeah, pretty UN. clearly i think i think so um i think it it made an impact i think it it definitely let people know that this is a big issue that People believe climate change is an issue, and um, I think that's something that a lot of Americans, I think majority of them will say that the science is pretty much there. <laughs> and, uh, and I think um, showing that, that big showing showed to the world that climate change is a big issue, and we're not necessarily pushing it as a policy issue as much as we would like to see, but um, I think uh, I, just, I just felt that it was important and good to see. So we'll leave it there. I want to thank you both so much for being on, and we'll take a short break and be back in a little bit.
Red Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. We're thrilled to announce a special event, the Silver Snail, 25 Years of Slow Food. This event is hosted by Slow Food USA, Heritage Radio Network, and Roberta's Pizza. It's been 25 years since Carlo Petrini and a group of activists launched a peaceful revolution to defend regional traditions, good food, gastronomic pleasure, and the slow pace of life. The slow food movement has since evolved into a comprehensive approach to food that recognizes strong connections between plate, planet, people, politics, and culture. Today, this movement involves thousands of projects and millions of people in more than 160 countries worldwide. Join us for a dialogue between Slow Foods founder Carlo Petrini and locavore activist Alice Waters as they reflect on the evolution of the food movement and all things slow. Friday, October 3rd from 1130 to 230. You can go to our website and click on the link on the right-hand side of the page to RSVP. We can't wait to see you there. Welcome back, everyone. I am honored to introduce Joan Gussow to the program. I can't think of a more fitting guest for our climate crisis show today. Joan has been called the matriarch of the Eat Locally, Think Globally movement by the New York Times, and she's the former chair of the Nutrition Education Program at Teachers College at Columbia University, where she still teaches the course that she first developed, Nutrition Ecology. She's the author of several books and an extended list of articles, and her thinking and teaching has influenced many of the major leaders working on food system reform today. And Joan has done all of this while tending to a garden and growing most of the food that she eats. So, Joan, welcome back to Heritage Radio Network. I'm very glad to have you on the show. Thanks, Kim. Actually, we have, from from my viewpoint here, we have a really terrible connection. I hope it's going out better. We... It's, I can I that, can just barely hear what's going on at your end. I'm getting um I'm getting the the all clear from our engineer. So hopefully you can hear me a little bit better now. Does that work for you? Yeah. Okay. I hope it's go. I hope I hope the listeners can hear better than I can hear. Yes, <laughs> so, we can hear okay. you. We can hear you perfectly, um, which is obviously very important to what we want to accomplish today. So I want to start out with one of the things in preparing for today's interview. One of the things that I came across was a quote of Michael Pollan in an edible uh, magazine story about you, where he said that once in a while he thinks that he has an original thought, and then he realizes that you said it first, and. Given that, I, I have to ask you what you know. What was it that got you thinking about food and its connections to the environment, going back to um, the, the start of your work in the in the nineteen seventies? Well, really, it's I was concerned about world hunger to start with, and I when I went into the field of nutrition, I went in because I was also concerned about the food supply and the sort of the things I saw in the supermarkets that had appeared there since I had. Last gone to the, when I last went to the supermarket just before I went off to college, 
in California, and then 12 years later came back, moved out of New York, lived in the suburbs, and went back to a supermarket. I was simply appalled by what had happened. So I went into nutrition thinking everyone would be concerned about these things. And it turned out nobody was. (laughs) So I had come really from an environmental background. My husband was a a vice president of Friends of the Earth, and... and, um, uh, and I was very concerned about all these issues, and so I began just collecting stuff that interested me. And as I collected it, I would, at the end of each year, uh, school year, I would, in the summer, I would collect things on my dining room table and ask myself, what on earth has had to do with food? <laughs> and so I just gradually put together a series of topics that seemed to me to be related to food. agriculture to start with, which no one was looking at, but but all the environmental consequences of the kind of agriculture that we were at that time pursuing, pesticides, herbicides, all the fallout from that. And it just evolved into this course, which I taught, and then somebody came to me and asked me to do a book from my course, and I did that, and it's called The Feeding Web. And that's what Michael was referring to when he said what he said, because it's true that when I look back now at the feeding web, which was published in 1978, it's stunningly relevant, (laughs) which suggests that little has been done to uh, deal with the problems. Right. Uh, I I think that is something in reading some of the articles that you'd written as well in preparing for this. You know, a lot of the topics are incredibly resonant today, and to your point, um, indicating that you know these issues are, if anything, much more significant than they were then. But when you mm. mentioned uh, keying into this because of the items that you saw in the supermarket, can you elaborate on that? What was it that you were seeing on supermarket shelves that made you think? Well, when I was born, there were 800 items on the supermarket shelves. That was 1928, and it went up to about a thousand, and then, and then came the post-war period. What happened was, during the war, there wasn't a lot of new products introduced. Um, And then the post-war period came, and one of the places where they saw there was a possibility for growth, we've been feeding all these people overseas and all our troops overseas in the food industry, was concerned about continuing to grow. And so they invented all these, and and they had developed all this machinery for for, for uh, preserving products to get it shipped overseas, so all these techniques. And so they started inventing products. And so what I saw when I went back to the supermarket, which was in ni- the 1950, 1958, I guess, um, was, was this appalling collection of stuff. I remember writing that I saw women feeding their toddlers donut holes, baby donuts and juice drink, and I was just stunned. Of course, it's much worse now, but mm-hmm. but I thought that that was just an appalling choice. And my kids ate cheese. I opened the thing of cheese when I walked through the supermarket, and they gnawed on a piece of cheese. But the, <laughs> the truth is that, that we have developed so many products. They're not, I don't even call them products. They're food odd. They're sort of food items that are food-like items, really, I mean, that are in the supermarket, that we, we you know, we don't really need any of these things. Right, and just I the, mean, the idea that the number of items in and of itself represents a certain amount of like processing. That's like 30 to 40,000 items now, right. which is ridiculous. It's so, just ridiculous. The, the courses, I know, 
about the connection between food and how we grow food and human health, but you shared your uh, syllabus with me, and I noticed on there that there's also a class that's dedicated to information pollution and the question of what can education do. And I, you know, we live in a world today where there's so much information and a lot of it is paid for and sponsored content. I actually, I read recently um, in a news article that there's now more than four PR people for every journalist, but I wanted to get your take on, you know, what does that have to do with food? And, And what do you tell your students about what education can do about the issue of information pollution? I began that I be that I first put that topic in about maybe five or six years ago, maybe more time does pass, but um because I wanted them to understand that there was a lot of information coming from the food industry that was entitled that was designed to be misleading, but about three years ago, it occurred to me that i had i had really things had gone way beyond that. It had nothing to do anymore with just the food industry trying to put out publications like the dairy industry, but it was like the the web had had multiplied the opportunities for this, so that it was incredibly hard to figure out what the truth was. Whenever something came out that was controversial, that or well, not so much controversial, but in any way attacking or threatening the powers that be, the people with the money, uh, then the then the response that came out was so bludgeoning, so overwhelming that you really, it was very hard to keep hold of whether you knew any, whether was it true what you knew or was it not true what you knew. And so I tell my students that the best, the best thing you can do is to have some kind of cognitive frame, which is what my course is intended to create. It's intended to tell you where to put each little piece of information that comes in. Otherwise, you just end, end up with a heap of stuff that doesn't mean anything. So I so the course tries to create a kind of cognitive frame around food. Oh, I see. This reason air pollution is important is because of this, or uh, you know, that's what it's about. And, and you, the other thing is to look at who's who's promoting it. Right, and you I mean to look about, at who. The, yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Joan. The um, but you were talking about the response that you can get sometimes when you go out with a new idea or with a, a idea that's critical right. of the status quo. Right. And I know that that's something that you've experienced in particular with one of your proposals that I want to talk about a little bit more today, which is one of the potential policy levers for changing the American diet to be more climate friendly, more climate resilient, uh, more overall sustainable, which is the dietary guidelines for Americans. And oh, yes, yes. Do you yes. want to talk well, a little bit about... I was fascinated about- to learn from the piece that you kindly sent me about the latest report on it, that the majority of the comments that have come in about sustain, putting sustainability into the dietary guidelines are from the food industry. Yeah, so I want to just back yeah, up a little bit for listeners who aren't familiar with that. And the piece is a civil elites piece that was summarizing some of the feedback that's, um, that's come in already. But the, the dietary guidelines, you know, are set basically the pattern for how the government is going to advise Americans to eat healthier. And this is where they right. were first introduced in 1980. They're updated every every five years. And this is where, for people who aren't familiar, we get my plate and prior to that, the food pyramid. And for the first time, the committee, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, has requested comments on the concept of sustainability and has uh, sustainability as, as one of the topics for one of their subcommittees. And this was a, a recommendation that you first made, I think, in the 
80s that this is something that should be a concept that should be incorporated into the dietary guidelines. Right. But um, right. going back to the initial conversation, received a lot of pushback to it then. So I, I'm interested in your observations about um, what the potential implications are of of changing the guidelines to incorporate ideas of of sustainability and, you know, your recollections from that time or the evolution of the discussion since the time that you first brought this up? Well, I think the great, there's a great big elephant in the room, which is called beef. Uh, obviously, the guidelines have traditionally, because of the force of everything, been very modest about, about you know, being sure to have lean beef and, you know, sort of, sort of, being not really saying eat less, as as Marion Nessel pointed out years ago, you know, you don't you don't ever say eat less of anything because that that arouses everybody's now, everyone gets upset with you if you say eat less or something. So they've tiptoed around that. But if you're going to talk about climate issues, you can't really avoid talking about the fact that we eat way too much meat, we eat way too much protein. Period, and that if you're going to have beef, it should all be. It should certainly be pasture-raised. It should not be feedlot beef. And that's, of course, a hugely, hugely, hugely provocative issue for a very large industry in this country. So that's one of the things. And, and the, the, other, the others, I remember one of the ones in our original one was to eat less salt, which, of course, is a, generally a health recommendation and is not too much pushed back on, but we, could, we tied it to, uh, to uh, generally ocean pollution and and the but uh, I can't remember exactly how how we worked that one in it was a little tougher but we took all the dietary guidelines and and tied them to environmental issues that were prominent at that time and I have not looked at it recently but uh, I don't think I'd be embarrassed by any of it but it certainly there certainly are huge environmental issues I mean one one of the things that I hope I, I'll just quickly bring up because I want to be sure we talk about it in the in the governments just came out with this report of of having climate climate uh, friendly agriculture i have not heard nearly enough discussion or comment about the fact that growing if we grew uh, the, the rodale press report that came out showing that based on their own research that if everything was grown organically if we be, or sustainably you know returning things to the soil, not using so much herbicide and pesticide, et cetera, et cetera, we could actually, and if, if all animals were, were grazed, we could actually capture in every year all the CO2 that's put out and perhaps more so that we could actually begin to reverse global warming. They, they put that out. It's a very provocative idea, a very encouraging idea, but it's not being seriously discussed. It wasn't seriously discussed at all in that in that little government USDA thing about climate friendly right. and yes, you're, uh, agriculture. That's we're and it's, yet it's a huge it's a huge challenge. Is that true? Is it true that would be all we would have to do? I mean, that's a, that, you know. And yeah. the thing is that people will say, "Oh, well, that's too." Africa's already doing that. I mean, the peasants in Africa have already discovered that if they go back to more traditional methods and use composting and stuff like that, which is not quite traditional, they will be able to produce more for less money, and they will have better soils. They've already discovered that in some of the poorest parts of the world. So it's not like it's a mystery and we're going to have to introduce this arcane new thing around the world. We right. just need to encourage it. So I know you're referring to the uh, launch of the Climate and Agriculture Alliance. I, I'm, I'm sure that I'm, that's not quite the right term, but the USDA 
uh, along with other partners in the American government, have announced their, their formal partnership and participation in this alliance, yes, which includes... it's called the Global Alliance for Climate Smart Agriculture, Thank you. which got launched just... This week, right. Yesterday. Right, and, and, um, and that there's been some questions about the potential for that because of who's participating, which includes a lot of industry members, but at the same time, many find it incredibly heartening that this is a very mainstream and critical discussion about the role of agriculture and climate and what can be done to improve it. And, uh, and I think, you know, how, where that will go in terms of exploring some of the solutions that, that Rodale has proposed and that, that you're talking about in terms of agriculture being more than more than uh, reducing the the negative contributions of agriculture, that agriculture can really be part of reversing the impacts of putting carbon into the environment is a very provocative and exciting idea. But before we wrap up, I want to get one more, I guess actually two more thoughts from you. So the first one is, you know, going back to the dietary guidelines and the role of um, the guidance that will be given to Americans about what they can buy and um, what they should be buying and thinking about both for their own health and potentially for the health of the overall food system. I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, versus versus major policy changes, what, what do you see as the role of the consumer in changing the food system? And, and maybe even some, you know, sometimes people don't like the word consumer in talking about the importance of all that we all play in changing the food system. But I want to ask you that, you know, what, are, what is the role of the consumer and uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first role, the first role of the consumer is to get educated. I mean, to educate themselves. And it's so easy now with the, with the web, it really is, but to, to educate themselves about where their food comes from and at what cost and to think about it. I mean, just to get themselves thinking about food in those terms, <laughs> not just that it's in the supermarket and it's cheap, but where it comes from and what the what the environmental costs of producing it are. And it's pretty easy to research. <laughs> Excuse me. And there are a number of books out that relate to that. Mostly, if you follow, if you really just look at the general dietary advice most nutritionists give, which is to eat more fruits and vegetables, more whole grains, and less less animal products, you'll be well on the way to reducing your environmental footprint. And if you then make sure that if you have an animal product, you know its origin and it doesn't come from the American, the hideous animal food system that is producing most of our meat, uh, which I must say, I, I say that without, it's just, it's just awful. I mean, if you read enough about the way hogs are raised or chickens are raised or paddle are raised, you wouldn't want to eat it. So, so try to find out where your meat comes from. Try to get to know a farmer. Try to eat from close to home, and and pay attention and and recognize as Barbara King Solver said long ago that if you whatever great thing you do today, remember that it began with with you with eating something that came out of soil. We need to remember that soil is at the root of the health of the entire planet, and the whole, entire economic system that we have is based on. Growing things, mining things, taking things from the earth, and using energy to convert them. And the energy ultimately comes either from fossil plants or from today's plants or from the air or from the sun. And that's what we have to keep in mind and, and not have this magic view that food just appears in the supermarket or on our tables. 
Yeah, and, it, and that is one of the challenges with making change because it's hard. It's a, it's more of an intellectual exercise for most uh, people buying food to connect all the dots that you just talked about. Um, and just to wrap up, I want to I want to ask you both about the potential for people to do that just through through thinking. Essentially, can they make better choices? Um, and also, you know, what it's like for you at this point in your life to see so much attention and focus on issues that you were really one of the first to shed light on. Well, it makes me not want to ever go out and give a speech because I've already said it all, and I don't want to hear the sound of my <laughs> so own So thank voice you for anymore. coming on the air today. And that <laughs> it's like everyone's discovering these things, and I'm saying, right, 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 that's fine, good. Yes, okay. I tried I gave my last speech and I was I wanted to give a cheerful speech. I wanted to talk about the, how local has become so popular, how people are paying attention, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, things kept hammering at me from my computer about things that were going on in the world like we're going to we're you know, we're going to re- have the highest out well, bottled water will reach the, will become the most popular beverage. I mean, the insanity of bottled water is an environmental issue. Is I mean, and er, one after the other, these things came up. That we're tearing up more prairie than we've torn up since the 1920s, and so on and on. So I I'm tired of going out and bringing bad news. I've been doing this for 40 years. <laughs> Well, I thought you were going to say that you gave a happy speech and found that those were a lot less interesting to the audience, which might be, which might also be the case. So, <laughs> so you, so you'll you'll continue to find things to um, to make us all aware of. It sounds like, or help well, make us more, I, more aware. Well, I, I I have to keep looking at reality, and I mean, I'm very. I, I find that we we had class last night, and we basically allowed the students to just go around and talk about we were talking about food and people but the climate march was so big in their lives you know it was such a heartening thing to see that many people because they're experiencing this thing of taking my class in which they're learning all these these horrors about the world which people don't want to look at and discovering that that their friends don't want to talk about it they don't want to hear about it they don't want to believe it they don't want to believe there's a problem people don't are still in denial and so the climate march was just to have all those people around them who believed as they did, you know, it was just wonderful. And that, so, I think, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to oh, say, yeah. I think that's a great uh, note to wrap the conversation up on. And that's where we started our show today, and we'll leave it there, and we'll see what momentum comes out of that march. And I want to thank you, Joan, and our other guests for participating today. That's going to be bring us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. And again, I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you for listening on the Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.